Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a Lights and Sirens conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Lights and Siren, a Code 3 emergency response activated in times of immediate danger. Lights and Sirens are often used for drug overdoses and poisoning cases. The very first 911 call ever made in the United States was placed by a senator in Haleyville, Alabama. The second was from Nome, Alaska. Today, there are over 240 million 911 calls every day from the United States, or 450 every minute. People call 911 for medical reasons, mental health crisis, and social dilemmas. No matter what, the system is there for you. Behind the scenes are EMS professionals who perfect the response system, as well as connect patients with the chain of care from 911 call to the hospital. That used to be the only avenue for a 911 call. A hospital. But now there are other avenues of care outside a hospital that we will hear about. Shout out to my producer, Dave Rivas, who worked as a 911 dispatcher fielding all sorts of emergency calls before he retired and devoted his career to sound, music, acting, and of course, the High Truth Podcasting. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Dr. Love. It was nice meeting you the other day in the paramedic radio room. My name is Rochelle and I'm an assistant-based hospital nurse coordinator. Our hospital is a base station where paramedics call in and get direction from MICNs for guidance on medical therapy and destination decisions for 911 calls. My question is, now that there are more medication options to treat opioid withdrawal, do you think that buprenorphine will become part of the medication options that paramedics carry? Thank you, Rochelle, for your provocative question and your daily support of patients who call 911 and are brought to the hospital. Interestingly, your question also explores how 911 calls can provide treatment without transportation to the hospital. To answer your very great question, I have 
the rock and roll star of EMS, Dr. Jean Hearn. Dr. Hearn works as a medical director for both public and private EMS agencies in California and has been the medical director for GMR Contra Costa operations since 2007. He's board certified in both emergency medicine and emergency medical services. He is a clinician, researcher, author, award-winning educator, and innovator. Is there anything else he did not accomplish in his career? For high truth audience, you may be interested in the creation of overdose receiving centers and paramedic-initiated buprenorphine. To learn more about Dr. Jean Hearn, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Jean Hearn, welcome to High Truths. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. I think I met you when we were both children. Um, <laughs> it was it was a while back. A long time ago. And wow, what an accomplished career you've had. You're the uh, rock and roll star of EMS. And if you could share experience that you have in emergency medicine, EMS, to working on issues of drugs and substance use. Absolutely. Well, thanks for the intro. I, I, I hardly deserve it. But I am... Um, I've been an emergency physician for 27 years. Uh, my clinical position is at, at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. Um, and I focused predominantly on education initially, and then I started doing EMS as well and became an EMS medical director for a number of different agencies uh, for both public and private agencies. And Highland um, in Oakland has sort of been a, a, a test zone hotbed for um, opioid research uh, in the in the sense of what we call the California Bridge Program, which is the idea of emergency departments having sort of low threshold access or giving low threshold access to patients who are experiencing withdrawal, who have an opioid use disorder, um, and getting them into treatment, getting them access to buprenorphine um, with a pretty low barrier. Some uh, hospitals or hospital systems really make patients jump through a lot of poops to get into treatment. Um, and the bridge program, uh, was funded through the state of California. And, uh, and one of my colleagues is one of the PIs in the, in the bridge program. And we started talking about how Andrew Herring. Yeah. Andrew Herring. And, and we started talking about how, you know, patients who are EMS patients, might not even make it to hospitals because you know they overdose and then they get you know uh, revived, if you will, or, 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 or woken up, resuscitated with Narcan or naloxone, and then they might sign out against advice. Like you can't force patients to come to the hospital um, uh, unless they're you know comatose or whatever, and so uh, so they could sign out against advice and never even make it to the emergency department. So maybe maybe the, there was this whole category of patients that we were missing in terms of the opioid crisis. Like we know now, you know, there's what, 120,000 deaths a year from, 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 from opioids. Um, and it's affected you know, everyone. Like, you know, everybody knows uh, a neighbor, a colleague, uh, uh, a, a family member or a cousin or somebody who is affected with. It's the crisis of our time. It's not COVID. It's, it's fat. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And it's, and it's, 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 it's remarkable. And so maybe we're, we were missing patients who would sign out against advice. And so we started brainstorming maybe four or five years ago about what we could do uh, to, to allow EMS to have a greater role 
in this process. And it's, it's interesting because it also, um, I think seeing overdose patients, giving them Narcan, having them sign an AMA, and then maybe seeing them again in a couple of weeks, like it's really frustrating for, uh, for EMS providers, much like it's frustrating for, uh, for emergency department, uh, providers as well. So we started brainstorming about maybe we take the, 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 the California bridge model of, uh, of this low barrier, access to suboxone or buprenorphine, which has been proven to save lives. If you are in a clinic getting suboxone or buprenorphine, your mortality rate drops by like 70%. Um, so clearly that is a, it's a very interesting drug for a lot of reasons, but the most important reason is that like you are saving lives. Um, and that number is higher than like aspirin or you know any other in almost any other intervention we we do in medicine like a 70% mortality difference is like mind blowing so maybe we figure out a way for paramedics to get those patients buprenorphine um or get them access to buprenorphine easier and so we uh, again, so about 5 years ago we started brainstorming and i started talking about it at the at the medical directors groups um in california and by the way California isn't the first, um, but uh, but but our project sort of took off of some other projects that were that were started. So um, I have to shout out to Camden, New Jersey, and San Antonio, just like groundbreakers in the field. Um, but we started brainstorming about what to do, and then we got a grant from the state, uh, the California Department of Public Health, to launch test program. So we did it in Contra Costa County. Um, and we what we did was we got a special, um, uh, we applied for a trial study. And the trial study was, we wanted to have paramedics, give paramedics the tools to treat patients who have an opioid crisis or have an opioid use disorder, and who are high risk of death. Like we know that if a patient has an overdose, they have a really high chance of dying in the next right. month in the next year. I mean, it's, so it's, it's Russian roulette. You've been revived once. And uh, how many times, yeah. how many lives do you have? Oh, it's crazy. In fact, there was a really interesting, I think there was a New York times piece about this patient who had overdosed like three times in 48 hours uh, where they would. I think I saw overdose. that guy. Yeah, you probably said. I mean, it's crazy. Like you'd overdose. It's got so sad. I've, I asked it's, now people, how many times has this happened to you? And I'll get like nine, yeah. 10. It's crazy. Like you almost right. died that many times. It's so crazy. And then they, you know, they feel terrible. They got Narcan. They feel terrible. They're in the ED or whatever. They're, they start to feel withdrawal. And then they go, they get discharged and they go home and they use again. Um, and so there's a really high, the risk in the first 48 hours is actually pretty high. Um, and then in the first 30 days is pretty high. And in the first year is like, like 5%, like one in 20 overdose patients will die in the next year um, if they didn't die from that overdose. And I, I feel that when I, take people who think, oh, this is just a Narcan wake up. I see someone who is a, who can die. I, I'm seeing someone who's about, to, who's such at risk of dying, right? It's like the most important thing, most important conversation or act I do, because this is someone who's near death, just like CPR. Right. And so what's interesting is that, you know, uh, there's been so so much stigma about you know patients who have an opiate use disorder, but you look at them and you're like it's like they have like this incredibly like precipitous 
like heart disease, like blockage in their artery that you know is is like super high risk, and yet we don't really do much about it. Um, and so that was part of the thing is like, like, what else can we do to sort of to 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 get this rolling? So the grant, what we did was everyone talks about suboxone or, or buprenorphine and, and that is super fun and it's really interesting and it's very sexy because it's the drug that like matters in a lot of ways because you can't really overdose on it. Um, it has this really interesting threshold. Like if you take too much, you don't stop breathing, you don't die. Um, so that part's really interesting, but uh, perhaps we thought was more important was actually having this system in place where the paramedics can like link these patients to a clinic system and to like share the data and maybe take them to a different hospital. So that was the, that was the, the, the pilot project we did. Um, and these were, these were 911 based medics, right? So these are just medics that you call 911 and a medic shows up and they have the ability to do this. So we started, we did four things. We call them the four pillars um, in Contra Costa County. Um, and the reason why we chose Contra Costa is I had a pretty good like clinic like community clinic, public health clinic setup so that they could get access to, to appointments. So the four things were, we had a public access Narcan program or naloxone distribution program. So the paramedics can hand out naloxone to uh, a patient that had just overdosed, a family member, somebody on the street who walks up to them and says, hey, can I get some naloxone? Um, and that's funded through the state of California um, to through a grant, um, but it's really cool because it's basically like distributing free naloxone to anybody who needs it, who might be at risk. So that we thought that, that was really important. Um, and we've actually had a number of reversals from the naloxone that we have given out, which is pretty cool. I think we're up to like 25 reversals, 25 or 30 of the ones of from the naloxone that we've given out. Right. It feels good, um, right? A save. People love the save. like, hey, but then they like- I remember when, uh, when we first started giving naloxone out to um, uh, first responders, it would be a race, right? So they would be, it was a pilot project. We're giving it to the sheriff and they'd give it once and then you call 911, the ambulance comes and they give the second dose. And so the ambulance people got the save. It's like, no, 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 we want to get the save. So they were like quick to give their two ones so they could count the save on there and before paramedics arrived. <laughs> yeah, and it's great. I mean, it's it, it's incredibly important and it's really, it's, you know, uh, the public access Naloxone, the threshold has really been changed. I mean, you can go into almost any pharmacy and and get it now. I mean, it's really it's really been 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 helpful. So that was something we 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 thought was really good, because what was really interesting is that like librarians could give out naloxone and or uh, but paramedics like it was really rare for agencies to do it, um, which was sort of funny. And we're like, why isn't why is that the case? Like law enforcement would have it. It's also sad that but, the library is a place to use drugs, but that's another so. <laughs> exactly. But um, but we're like we're like, oh like random community organizations can hand out naloxone, but like paramedics don't like why isn't that the case? And again, it's a question of like, oh, well, is there liability? What if the what what happens when the drug runs out? And it was just sort of a strange like demystifying the process. So in, in your study, did uh um in your pilot project, did ambulances have buprenorphine just like they had epinephrine and atropine and other drugs? They did. They did. It's really cool. Um, yeah. So we, we so, uh, that, so that was like the fourth pillar. I'll get to the, the, the other two were uh, data sharing so that 
like if a patient had an overdose, there was a data trigger using first watch, which is just a, a, a computer program that, that mines data and an email gets sent to the substance use navigator um, who oversees the project and she can reach out to the patient. So every time a, somebody overdoses, there's a trigger. And so there's like a data sharing component, which I think might be the secret sauce to why this program works. So there's a substance use navigator who gets alerted every time somebody encounters the EMS system as an overdose which is cool. Um, the third thing was an overdose receiving center. And the, we designated our county hospital as like the place to take overdoses if a patient is willing. We are not forcing anybody to go there, but just like a trauma center or a stroke center, um, we thought that maybe these patients who are at high risk of dying should go to a place that has like docs who are ready to prescribe more buprenorphine, give them a prescription, follow up with clinics and have a, have a navigator there. So that was the third thing. And then the fourth thing was, to enable all of the rigs to have buprenorphine. And so all of our paramedics got trained on how to do a cow score, which is the opioid withdrawal scale. Um, and so if they encountered a patient who was in withdrawal, they could give buprenorphine. They have to, there's a whole protocol, um, but uh, it involves actually calling like a base physician to just confirm that, the, that it's a reasonable case. And it fits, it fits the criteria, but it's pretty cool. And so this is the in in Contra Costa, we were the first, uh, we were the first one to offer buprenorphine for any kind of withdrawal um, as a nine one one medic. So you could either be in withdrawal because you just got a bunch of naloxone, or you could be in withdrawal because you um, just haven't used in a few days. Um, but if your cow score reaches the threshold, we were enabling the medics to make a difference. Don't you have to wait, like if you, you know, we have someone who overdoses and you give them naloxone or wait at least an hour till that's, so I don't put them in withdrawal by giving suboxone. How did the medics handle that? Yeah, it's really interesting. There's this weird phenomenon that we found with the post naloxone patients mm -hmm. that like flooding them with buprenorphine actually works really, really well. Um, and, and, and you don't need to wait. Um, and what's really fascinating is that the, the Camden folks in New Jersey, so they were the first, I have to shout out the, the, in, at Cooper Health, they were the first to, to have a 911-based um, EMS system. It's not like a community paramedic or a mobile integrated thing. They're literally like street medics who can do it. And they can only give it post-naloxone. Post and they've given it out like 200 times now. Um, and I think they've had one case of precipitated withdrawal. Wow. And it's, yeah, there's some- Did they use a higher control. dose? Yeah, well, they use they use a pretty big dose, and so and this is something that is that there's a little bit of tension I think between the outpatient addiction specialists and the emergency department based addiction specialists. We always want more, right? We do more, and they do like like the microdosing, and we like. Right? Well, yeah, we'd like you know for us, we're like go big or go home, uh, right. sort. And and so for our patients, like especially post naloxone, like they are in withdrawal, right. like big time withdrawal. And so like if you, if you they're already in withdrawal, you're not going to create withdrawal. They're right. They're in withdrawal because we just saved their lives. Yeah. And what's interesting is that that you know this concept of like microdosing or like cross tapering is really in that clinic setting where you're not sure if a patient is in withdrawal or maybe they are still using, and so you give them like a little bit, and then they and they can still use. It's very strange. You know, Gene, you just um, affected, I think, how I'm going to start approaching patients who come to me because they're when I feel like they're high, what I've been doing is saying, this is not for you today. Here's a prescription. Use it tomorrow. You want to mm -hmm. be in withdrawal. 
Now I'm wondering, it'd be an experiment. If, if I know they're high, if I should just, and they want to start buprenorphine, if I should go just on a huge dose or if I should just wait to the next day. I've been just waiting to the next day. You know, it's, it's really... All right, so there's one case report in the published literature. Of, and by the way, our audience to hear what doctors go through when they like don't know an answer. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really it's really hard because if somebody is like if they have opiates in their system, if you if you give them buprenorphine, they will go into withdrawal and they might they would feel terrible. And so buprenorphine is really in the in the patient who is experiencing withdrawal. But there's one case report, and I've heard of some others, but they haven't been published, where um, somebody was in the ED. Actually, I think the case report was published at, uh, out of Camden. They were in the ED. They were high. Like, they had opiates, but they're like, look, I want to get off. And so they literally, like, gave them Narcan to send them into withdrawal. Oh, interesting. And then immediately gave them buprenorphine, like, I don't know, five minutes later, I have to look the case. I can't remember the exact timing, but it was like immediately thereafter, they gave them bup. So they like send them into withdrawal and then give bup. And then, you know, an hour later, reassess, maybe give a little more bup. And then they send them home. All right. Next patient that meets that criteria. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I've actually heard of another uh, another provider doing it and they're in the process of writing it up. And, you know, when this was first published, everyone's like, oh, I, that's so crazy. That's like... You know, are you causing harm by porting them into withdrawal? But you want a patient who wants that, who understands that, right? You have to get the right patient. Absolutely. And from a utilitarian standpoint, you're like, look, you are going to feel bad when you're in withdrawal, but we are going to like try to save your life because this is the long-term solution. Interesting. Or what I've been doing, just wait till tomorrow when you feel bad, right? That's what the methadone clinics do, right? That's yeah, totally. They send their totally. patients, so you know, come back tomorrow when you're withdrawal. We're not going to help you today. Yeah, no, it's really, it's really fascinating. So, yeah, so we've now, um, so we thought that we weren't sure what the percentage was going to be for the patients who are in withdrawal because they just overdosed and got a bunch of naloxone, or if they were in withdrawal just because they hadn't used for a while. And it turns out like two thirds of our cases are because they're just in withdrawal, like they haven't used. Oh, interesting. Um, I thought it would be yeah. the other way around. I did too. For 911 um, call, right? Like, I'm sorry. So people call 911 when they're in withdrawal. See, I thought you call 911 more often when you overdose. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, they just because they feel terrible, they're vomiting or they just in a lot of pain and they're like, you know, what else can I do? Um, I think as time goes, if we know that this is available, there'll be more 911 calls. And I don't know if we want that completely, but more 911 calls for treatment of withdrawals. If you don't have, if you can't get your fentanyl um, and you're feeling yeah. bad, then you can always call nine one one. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because if somebody's miserable from withdrawal, I don't think they call and say, "Hey, I'm in withdrawal." They call and say, "I'm okay. vomiting. Right. I feel terrible. I've got pain in my back, or I've got pain for whatever, um, or I have anxiety, or I'm I have palpitations." I mean, and they don't. They probably don't call and say that, but. If I know there's a there's a grant coming online in uh, in North Carolina actually that they're planning on it's like a mobile integrated system and they're gonna plan on these patients not going to EDs they're literally gonna like go out see the patient assess their scores if they're in withdrawal give them bup wait watch them and then sign them out yeah. um, 
And so then they wouldn't actually like contribute to ED volumes. Um, and that's part of the part of the big question is like the, the initial pushback that we got from people all over the state, well, all over the country really, uh, is like, shouldn't the EDs be doing this? Isn't this like a better, isn't the ED a better place for this? And it turns out that it seems like it's pretty safe. Like of all the cases we know of, I know we know of about 600 cases of pre-hospital buprenorphine so far um, in the US. And we know of like six or seven cases of precipitated withdrawal. So like 1%. Um, it seems like it's pretty safe. And what's also interesting is that like, it's really important to get this clinic access component. Like you, you know, buprenorphine here, you've got it, but you need to follow up in clinic tomorrow or the next day. It's you not, already have an appointment. It's other, it doesn't really work so well. Um, otherwise, then what, right? Yeah, exactly. And you're like, you really have to be in long-term treatment because, you know, a big dose of bup will last 24, 36 hours, um, but it really has to be sort of an ongoing program. And what's really cool about these this this program um, is that like a third of our patients who get buprenorphine are still in treatment at 30 days. Um, and that is the thing. Yeah, that's actually like a little mind-blowing. So it's, and it's not just us. So the Camden folks also have shown a, a follow-up rate like in the 30, I think 35 or 40%. Um, so it seems like like uh, as long as you like, if you give them bup and then you get, if you have a good clinic access system, like you can get f these patients follow-up and people who will like. And then uh, you get your mental health fixed and your physical health fixed, but you can't do any of that if your brain is hijacked by drugs. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the case is like bup has this weird thing. Like it, it, um, it, it takes care of all those withdrawal symptoms, but it doesn't like make you altered or have you stopped breathing. And so it, I, I feel like it gives the patient. And in this day and age, like, in this day and age, yeah. No one should be suffering from withdrawals. That right, we have treatment right. for that. Right, whether it's EMS or in the hospital or at your doctor's office, or um, that's very treatable easily. Yeah. Um, getting connected to treatment that's a little harder, but right. we're working on it. Yeah, and I think that's really the key. Is that like is. We also had questions of like, well, you know, maybe EMS bup isn't like, does that make a difference in the long term? Like, well, it treats people's suffering, and and so why not? Like, if we give we give like anti nausea drugs um, for somebody who's vomiting in the in the in the EMS world, it doesn't like fix what's causing them to vomit, but it makes yeah. them feel better. So why not like make why not relieve suffering? Like that's sort of the point. Of it's rewarding. It's what we came into medicine for, right? Exactly. That's sort of what we do. Like our job is to like relieve pain and suffering. And if it has this accidental byproduct of like getting 35% of them into clinic and that reduces their mortality by 70%, like I think it's a win. So anyway, so it's pretty exciting. Rochelle, um, um, Shagig is, uh, Rochelle is an EMS, uh, director, nurse director in our emergency department. And, uh, her question is kind of like what we've been talking about, but she is asking, will there be a time when buprenorphine becomes part of the medicine chest for every paramedic to carry and to treat withdrawal or opiate use disorder? You know, I think it might. It's it it turns out that you know we um 
we need to we need to treat enough patients with buprenorphine and have enough data to show that it's that that it seems like it's pretty safe. But so far, we've got pretty good numbers. Um, you know, it's a it's a drug that is it has a lot of um, people aren't very familiar with it. Even a lot of emergency physicians aren't familiar with buprenorphine, um, and so it takes a little bit of that discussion and to say like why it's important. Um, we actually in in the state of California. You can now apply as an EMS agency to get a, a, a waiver, a local optional scope, so that your paramedics can do it. And so far, we have like eight different counties in California that are that have applied. And so in the next year, um, actually, San Diego is going to start a pilot program uh, with a couple agencies doing buprenorphine. Uh, Monterey and Santa Cruz, San Benito, and Kern uh, are all in line to 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 start in the next uh, in the next few months. So it looks like it's it's picking it's up exciting. momentum. And if you think about historically, it would not be the first time that EMS pushed emergency medicine, right? Um, EMS pushed emergency medicine. Um, when you're able to do EKGs and we could do a STEMI now, why can't we start something now, right? So right. EMS pushed rest of emergency medicine when it came to, I think, a lot of, um, you oh. know, stroke centers and emergency centers, um, a lot of ACLS that really was started um, from EMS and pushed on to the rest of um, the emergency departments. 100%. And it's really been, you know, uh, EMS has been an extension of the hospital for a long time. It used to be that, you know, the, they were just ambulance chasers or they were hired by morgues to like, you know, to, to mortuaries to, 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 to carry patients like 100 years ago. Um, but but it really has changed now. Like paramedics have like a remarkable set of tools. Um, that can make a huge difference. Yeah, sending patients to a stroke center or sending them to a, a STEMI center, so then, and the EKG is already transmitted, so that the 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 heart attack team, the STEMI team's already like on their way or ready for the patient. So it's done a lot of really great things, um, and this is certainly one other tool that seems like it's pretty safe, pretty viable, um, and like if if we have 120,000 people dying in this country every year, like seems like the right thing to do. Right. So there's always like a controversy, like you started the concept of an overdose receiving center, sending that specific patient like into a, you know, a stroke center or a heart attack center for an overdose center. Um, and the philosophy is, shouldn't we all be doing that? Do we really need a specialty center or should we all be doing that anyway? Um, so what's your take? Yeah. I mean... I think in the ideal world, we should all be doing that anyway, but we're not there. Like we know that emergency, like it was, it was up until this past year, it was a huge threshold to get an X waiver to allow emergency physicians to prescribe buprenorphine. But we X X waiver. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, I mean, it's true. That's that part is awesome. But even now, like when you, if you ask like a, 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 pool of emergency docs, like how comfortable are you prescribing buprenorphine? Um, a bunch will still say like they don't know or they haven't used it very much. Um, and so until that time happens. I know, but they just need a nudge, right? I mean, we didn't have that when like, oh, well, I don't know how to treat COVID, right? I don't know what to do sure. with monkeypox. It's like, you know, I mean, we've done way more complicated stuff. In exactly, our- exactly. And so maybe having EMS give buprenorphine and then they show up at the hospital like, I think hey. that's what will happen. 
that Here could be happen or we are we all i think you know we'd all be doing it the the thoughts that i have on it to well, you know one is to prov- not the the dangers one is i see a lot of patients who overdose i end up admitting for medical reasons right they had ARDS or aspirations or they keep re-narcotizing and they need to be on a fentanyl and an naloxone drip um, so that's like one thing that just kind of needs to be in the protocol of, you know, people, and I'm sure EMS does it well, if people really, you, you, you don't meet outpatient uh, criteria, you need to go to the hospital. And then I love the concept um, of maybe you don't need to go to the emergency department, right? If, if an, I think all overdoses, people who almost died, all those people need to go to the hospital. We need to, you know make sure all your organs are working. But if people are, are calling 911 for withdrawal and it's a, you know, an, an opportunity to connect them to treatment, then maybe they don't need to go to the emergency department. Maybe there's street medicine or mobile SUD units or harm reduction and I've heard of programs with harm reduction. You can get, you know, an iPad and a provider and start buprenorphine and get your prescription sent from the field and not even go to the hospital. What do you think of those right. concepts of no, absolutely. And so you think of like, we know that our volumes for EMS patients have gone up, you know, five to 10% a year, every year. We don't have any more medics, we, you know, in, in the field. In fact, we have fewer now because of COVID and everything else. So if we could take those patients and not transport to the hospital, like, wouldn't that be better? So then you have decreased wall times for the patients who are waiting for beds. Yep. decreased, you know, all the hospital congestion, all the ED overcrowding. I mean, that's, that's it makes perfect sense. I love it. You actually gave me another idea. Um, there's a company we did a podcast with called Clear Scientific, and they're developing a sequestrant for methamphetamines. And it'll, it works kind of like sugamidin for um, uh, uh, used in anesthesia. Um, and it'll just sequester the meth, deactivate it. It includes actually fentanyl as well, and then you you eliminate it from your body. So you immediately get your brain back. It, it's not like Narcan, where it takes it um, when Narcan moves, it kicks opioid off the receptor. This actually captures the entire drug and deactivates it. So I could see a time where paramedics are using that, where you have patients with who are agitated and presumably on methamphetamine, and we know that very well on the West Coast, um, and you give them this CS1103, and boom, they're better. They have their brain back, and now they can make decisions because people who are really high on methamphetamine, they, they don't have the wherewithal to, right, right. to decide well for themselves. Yeah, no, and I think that's the that's that's really the key is that it has to be this middle zone where like 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 you said, if you give a patient naloxone, like they feel terrible and they are in no condition to like think about going to a clinic appointment tomorrow or the next day. So you have to find this middle zone where they're not they're not they don't have any clinical intoxication, but they're not feeling so bad that the only thing they want to do is get intoxicated again. So it's that sequestering of the effect so that they're in this middle zone where, right, they can make decisions, they can they can look out for their own welfare and all those things that like lead to long-term survival. So one of the concepts that you said in one of your pillars that really liked when I was at um, ONDCP, um, I met with an EMS director who also happened to be the public health director. So he created a system when 911 was called for an overdose 
you would get an ambulance, but you would also get the peer counselor that comes and meets you in the emergency department and has that immediate warm handoff. So you were saying that through, um, uh, you said first watch, the the data system, you automatically see a 911 call and that also um, sends a a peer counselor that give a phone number to that patient or how does that work? Yeah, so it is so both ways. So you get the trigger goes to the substance use navigator who is a peer counselor um, who's based at the hospital. Uh, And so if they go to the overdose receiving center, then the peer counselor can literally walk down the hall and start seeing that patient and helping them get through the process. If they sign out AMA or if uh, if they don't, if they're seen after hours or whatever, then the peer counselor at least has contact information from the from the patient care report, the hospital or the, the AMS record. So they can reach out to them and say, you, you know, 911 saw you yesterday. Uh, what can we do to get you a prescription or get you into a clinic appointment? And, you know, EMS systems have done similar things around the country. Like they'll have uh, like a mobile, a mobile team come the next day with, uh, you know, a, a, a paramedic, an off-duty firefighter, a peer counselor, uh, and somebody from a rehab program or something like that. Well, they'll they'll show up with three or four people say, hey, yesterday you almost died. Um, we have a spot for you in the treatment program. You want to, we can get you in or we can get you into a clinic program. And you just gave me a great idea. I think we could expand that even because I also work with the medical examiner and people who passed away. But I always think that for people, every person who dies has a circle of people who are at risk. And right now we have a crisis intervention team that that responds to that. But they only do that if law enforcement is around right then. But what if we were able to figure out who those people are and connect them with navigators? And and right. do that as well, even you know beyond the nine one one call. Absolutely, and that's the thing is like like the one that there's a couple that stand out, but there's one in um, I believe it's Ohio. It's called Coleraine Township, and they did something similar. Like their their next day team, I think has social worker. I think they actually have like a a, a law enforcement person, social work, law enforcement, peer counseling, and and um, a, a paramedic who goes out to the house and says, says "Look, you know, we're here to help." How can we help you help, you know, uh, and just assess the situation, see if there's others at risk um, and provide clinic appointments from counseling and everything else? Because, look, it's a non-judgmental thing to like get them to stay alive. Right. Right. For each person who dies, they have a circle of friends or family that are at risk. So that's absolutely. Um, I bet you are in favor of community paramedics, where paramedics can do more things besides just uh, go to nine one one and bring you to the hospital, but help with homeless and mental health, and, um, to send to addiction treatment centers. How are you uh, advocating for that or utilizing that? What's the best? Absolutely. Way? So, yeah, community paramedics actually have a have a huge role. Any of the sort of mobile integrated systems can can do wonders in this uh, in this in this realm, partly because they have a little bit more time um, at the bedside. So uh, they can, they free up the 911 medics to do the other calls and they can, but they have like additional training um, and a little more breadth of experience. So San Francisco just went live um, actually April 1st for their EMS Butte program that we helped, helped to get off the ground. Um, and they, they have a, like a community um uh, um, street overdose intervention team that is like community paramedics uh, with peer counselors. And they do some, they, it's very, you know, 
the innovation of having community paramedics would is a great one. The problem, one of the challenges with community paramedics, though, it's it's hard to fund. Um, and so a lot of the community paramedic programs are uh, are like grant funded and they're not as built into a 911 system uh, and, and to make it easily to make it more sustainable. Um, but I think they have a huge value. 100 percent. Yeah. OD map. Uh um, a, a computer system where we could see spike alerts and, and where overdoses happen and then deploy ideally resources to that region. Are you guys using that? I know it's going to be it's used around the country. It's actually very late to get to the West Coast. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't come to the West Coast more. Um, I yeah, a lot of our systems are are using it um, and are using it, uh, uh, you know, really well. Monterey uses it like really, really regularly. Um, it, it has a, a variable um, uh, uh, prevalence. Yeah. Uh, penetrance, perhaps, uh, in in California. Um, so we aren't using it as much in Contra Costa, but I know of other systems that are using it quite a bit, though. Right. So actually, there's a state law uh, we're helping support. I think it, uh, that'll require all uh, EMS agencies to use that, and and the state I think is requiring all everyone to use that. And that way we could see, really, it's it's not just for the data; it's to what we do with the data, right? And 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 deploy extra resources to where we know the hotspots are. Yeah, actually, the the as I understand it, the 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 EMS, the local EMS agencies are now required to send that data to uh, to the state. And the idea of of course is to is to have a greater sense of how that, um, yeah, how hotspots are, um, if there's spikes, if there's additional prevalence, um, and to deploy um, additional intervention resources there. That's cool. And I'll chat with you a little more even after this podcast, because I want to really promote that around around the state. Um, The other project I kind of want to get your feedback on is a project that I worked out all at the... um, at the White House, I think we even talked about it way back then, called Credo, a community response to drug overdose. We have a local task force in San Diego, but the, the, the national mission was to create a national voluntary standard to overdose clusters like we have for the NFPA 3000 standard that we have nationwide for active shooter. Um, so if we have, you know, a cluster... If we have an active shooter, this is the way law enforcement works, EMS works, hospitals work, social workers work, every, you know, different, many different agencies are working together on this active shooter response, no matter where it happens, whether it was, you know, in, or, or it started with the thought of it in Orlando, Florida and Las Vegas. But now, you know, we have an active shooter events. It seems like, you know, too often um, there's a uniform standard of how to, to work and get resources. We wanted to have the same type of um, philosophy and, and, and mechanism for overdose clusters that we're sadly seeing uh, more of. What do you think about or what would it take to get EMS on board as well as all the other services that need, you know, um, police, fire, it's a multi-professional um, standard, but what would it take to get on board to create such a standard? And would yeah, you support really- it? And do you think that that's a good idea or is that like... Nah, no, I mean, I th- I think it is. I mean, I think part of the challenge is, is that, um, you know, uh, when you see like, it's really, um, it's a great idea to actually to figure out like where the clusters are. And if there are spikes to, to have like a unified intervention, and that might be a, a spectrum of like a mobile integrated health, 
increased social work presence, street level clinics, um, you know, uh, uh, but part of it too is sort of awareness. I think that's part of the challenge is that, um, is that to integrate the law enforcement and EMS and hospitals uh, for like clusters really is um, like a standard like that would, would, would be great to just like elevate the, the awareness uh, of such a cluster because of the, right, right now everyone's, you know, everyone's like very tunnel visioned about like, oh, our hospital ED is overcrowded, uh, you know, but if they knew that, look, there's this some batch of fentanyl and now this fentanyl is mixed with xylazine or any of and it And it's happened, right? I mean, UC Davis, that's close to you, you know, ran out of ventilators, ran out of naloxone. They wanted to get a federal response. And if it was monkeypox or COVID, we'd have the answer to that. But because it was um, fentanyl, you know, right. that federal response to assist wasn't there. Yeah. And I think that's part of that, you know, part of addressing like this, the the stigma component, um, you know, so much of, um, you know, it was like crazy unfortunate that COVID and this and the fentanyl crisis happened at the same time because everyone was focused on COVID, but like more people died in San Francisco from fentanyl overdoses than they died from COVID. Um, yeah. It's, it's a number just, one a cause really... of death age 18 to 35, all causes of death. Fentanyl. Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's taken, you know, um, you know, million, million lives, more than a million lives now. Um, and so if you think 100,000 a year for a handful of years, it doesn't take long. Um, so to, to reach that sort of awareness level, and it's totally reasonable to have a standard uh, where you have like a, there's a bad batch or a, a clusters, then everyone is, a, is more aware and has a, a more unified response, 100%. Awesome. So if we revive or to revive that that principle of creating a national standard to overdose clusters, I'll be in touch because totally. because you're the rock and roll star of EMS. Hilarious. I don't know why you keep saying that. I mean, I, I mean, I had a band, but it was a long time ago. Oh, I didn't Stern. even know. Um, no, it was a it was a band at Highland. We we, we called ourselves Sternum. Oh, interesting. <laughs> For all the crack tests you did back then. Exactly. Um. Opioid shortages. Isn't that interesting that that we're talking about, you know, overdoses of fentanyl and yet there's opioid shortages for EMS and our EMS carry fentanyl because they couldn't get enough morphine. Um, and yeah. uh, so well, that's a little bit ironic. We had a patient who called 911 50 times in pain and just to get fentanyl. Oh. No, it's just it's what's really strange about the the procurement system is that like on a regular basis now there's like rolling shortages of like drugs that we thought were regularly available like albuterol. I don't know if you like there's a there's a huge albuterol shortage right now. Like what's like, with that? How can you do that? That's like our bread and butter for asthma. Yeah, how, like is that a thing? And we're like we have to have all these memos like if you can't get albuterol, you can use leave albuterol, you can use this. We're like who knew that that was a thing? But because it became generic and the one company that like made albuterol went out of business, like no one stepped in to do it. So, so like, it's just, it's insane that these regular drug shortages happened, but the irony of, of, of the shortage of morphine and, and everyone switched to fentanyl was not lost. Right. So magic wand, what would you do if you were um, king of EMS or king of the world? Um, and can uh, fix things for EMS or society right. and substance disorder? Well, I think my magic wand would be, 
my magic wand would be to change everyone's perception about what it's like to see a patient with an opiate use disorder or to have an opiate use disorder because there's so much sort of stigma about patients who have an opioid problem or an opiate use disorder and they don't people don't think about it as like a disease um and it's a disease that's super deadly and if you walk down the street and realize that you know of the 20 people you saw you know let's say they all had an opiate use disorder one would be dead in a year like just to eliminate the stigma and to recognize that this is a problem that affects all aspects of society regardless of race regardless of socioeconomic status um and and to recognize that getting people into treatment saves lives and buprenorphine saves lives and so if you if you would take away all the the preconceived notions and all of the bias that people have about treating these patients think of the amount of good we would do in the world well your magic wand is not really a magic wand it's it's going to happen I, I don't I don't think that that's magic. I think we're already on our way to do that. I think people enter the medical profession, love fixing things, and you teach this as here's something that you can fix. We love that. That's um, true. So I, what's, I, I don't think it's magical. Like? I think it's really doable. Your your goal is I think so. I hope so. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. So for the our, our, our the, the the folks who take these calls, because when the medics call in, they reach um oftentimes they reach Highlander uh, the base. Instead of like another EMS call, it's like, hey, this patient's trying to sign out AMA. What do you think? Or it's, this is like a case that you're like, look, you can you can authorize this and potentially save their life like over the phone. Um, and people love like this is this is real. Yeah, people like that. My my magic one may be more magical, <laughs> but I would like to see a world where we get the whole disease process, the whole substance use disease to much lower level. And that's by um, doing primary prevention, right? And we did that with tobacco. We did that with the um, with the opioid prescription epidemic. My listeners are like maybe tired of me saying this all the time, but I see <laughs> that that's where we need to invest in because we're really investing a lot in treatment but we're not doing the same prevention um, initiative that would prevent someone from having an opiate use disorder in the first place. And we could do a lot to in, in prevention. And um, that would be my magic wand. <laughs> totally. No, I love it. I think that'd be great. Yeah. So I want to say thank you so much to Rochelle. Thank you for your question and your work uh, with EMS integrating between the, the paramedics in the field and bringing them to the hospital. And thank you, Dr. Jean Hearn, um, for this discussion, for your vision, for your magic soon-to-be um, uh, hopes for the for the future. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a, this has been awesome, and I've really enjoyed uh, sharing with you uh, some of our perspectives. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.